Well, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of John this morning by turning together to John chapter 3, where we find the story of a man named Nicodemus, who's a guy who kind of finds himself in a bit of a bind. And here's the deal. Nicodemus is in a bind because on the one hand, he has this compelling, motivating, will not let me go, causing me to lose sleep night after night after night, searing, burning, question in his heart that only Jesus Christ can answer. And yet on the other hand, he's a Pharisee, which makes coming to Jesus to get the answer very, very, very difficult for him. If you know the story of the life of Christ, the Pharisees are sort of the perennial bad guys. They're the ones who stand most vehemently opposed to Jesus. They're the ones who are always constantly conspiring to discredit or to make Jesus look bad. They are the guys who orchestrate and stage the crucifixion of Christ, Nicodemus. Well, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And so if he wants to come to Jesus with an insincere question, one designed to make Jesus look bad, hey, that's applauded around the water cooler at work. But if he wants to come sincerely searching, not so popular. And he solves this dilemma by coming at night. So Nicodemus comes sneaking over to see Jesus to get an answer to this burning question under the cloak of darkness. John tells us this, John 3, beginning in verse 1. He says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and then he adds this. He says, a ruler of the Jews. So now what do we know about this guy? Well, we know he's a prominent man. We get that, don't we? We know that as a Pharisee, this is a guy who has devoted his life to studying what we call the Old Testament. Jesus, in a minute, is going to refer to him as a teacher of Israel. Today, we would give him the label Old Testament professor. This guy has spent a lot of time in the Bible, and he thinks he knows what it says. But he's going to learn some things today. He is a politically and religiously significant man, and that makes it very, very unpopular for him, at least with his peer group, to come sincerely seeking an answer to a real question that's burning deep down in his heart from Jesus. And so then John tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and as soon as he gets there, he unloads his question. He says this, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I know that it doesn't have a question mark at the end. I know some of you are wondering whether I skipped third grade English. You're questioning whether I know what a question is versus a statement. It sounds like a statement. It is a statement, but it's a question disguised as a statement. It's a question that's come, you know, sort of packaged and gift-wrapped in the form of a statement. What is Nicodemus doing? It's brilliant. He's coming to Jesus, and he's making a statement about Jesus to Jesus, hoping that Jesus will either agree with the statement or disagree with the statement and clarify who, in fact, he is. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for nobody else can do these kinds of things. I mean, unless the Lord is with him. Jesus, what do you think? Well, what does he think? What's the real question? The real question is simply, who is Jesus? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of Israel, a professor of the Old Testament, and this man came to Jesus by night under the cloak of darkness so as not to get in trouble with his peer group. And he said to Jesus, here's his question, gift-wrapped as a statement, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, do you agree with that, Jesus? Do you disagree with that, Jesus? And please clarify, because I need to know who you are. And notice what the Lord says in response. 
Jesus answered him and he said, truly, truly, I say to you. So now what is this seemingly uneducated rabbi who, as an aside, happens also to be God in the flesh, but what is this uneducated rabbi now going to do for the decorated professor of the Old Testament? He's going to drop some truth on him, but not just on him. He's going to drop some truth on me. He's going to drop some truth on you this morning. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, here we go, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because Nicodemus, at least at this point in the story, is not born again. And yet Nicodemus nevertheless believes that he's going to get to see the kingdom of God. Or let me put it in language that we sort of use today. Nicodemus thinks that when he dies, he's going to go to heaven. That at the end of this age, in the resurrection from the dead, oh, he's going to be raised and he's going to receive a glorious inheritance. He thinks all of those things, and yet Jesus is coming to him and going, nope, sorry, that's not the deal. Unless one is born again, he cannot. Not it's going to be difficult for him. It's unlikely that he will. He absolutely will not see the kingdom of God. And here's part of the key to understanding this. Why does Nicodemus think that he's good? He thinks that he's good because he keeps the rules of God for the most part. And as a Pharisee, guys, he keeps the rules of God better than pretty much anyone, including us. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is, I think, kind of understandably befuddled. I mean, you know, I think that we're kind of harsh on Nicodemus and quick to judge him for just not automatically getting it, you know, because we all get it. But I want you to think about if you were Nicodemus for a moment, you go there, you think you got it all figured out, you think you're on God's mission and you've gained God's heaven and you show up and Jesus just drops this born-again language on you that's completely foreign to your thinking. He's not understanding it and it sounds, at least at first blush, a little ridiculous to him. And so Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time and do his mother's womb and be born? And you can almost hear the incredulity in his voice. He's like, what? What are you talking about? How can a guy who's 46 be born again physically? I mean, how does that work? I don't think mom's going to sign up for that program. I'm pretty sure that's going to be awkward. But Jesus is not talking about a physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual birth. He's constantly teaching spiritual lessons and speaking of physical things to do it. Nicodemus just hasn't figured that out yet, but what Jesus is talking about is the birthing work of God's Holy Spirit in which He comes to you as an individual and in which He makes you alive to Jesus in which he takes this Jesus that many of us have heard about all our lives and all of a sudden gives us eyes to see him in a completely different way. To hear his story like it's fresh and new, like we've never heard it before. It's like, good grief, I've heard this all my life, but somehow I'm hearing it differently today. Giving us hearts to humble ourselves before this Jesus, to recognize our need for this Jesus. To come to realize that, you know, we're not very good people, no matter how many of God's rules we keep, and no matter how many people we do a better job of rule-keeping than. To behold the Son of Man lifted up, 
as our Savior, as our King. Nicodemus says, you know, hey, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's like, oh, come on, you know, help me out here. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, and not just to Nicodemus, though, to us as well, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, it's a spiritual birth, he cannot, there it is again, enter the kingdom of God, for that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And yet, it's pretty clear that Nicodemus is still sitting here with his mouth wide open thinking, because listen to what Jesus says next. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And now he gives us an analogy about how the Spirit of God works. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. Now, we all understand that. We're familiar with that. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sounds. That is to say, you can sense its effects. You feel it on your face. You see it blowing the leaves in the trees. You hear it whistling in your ears. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sounds. You, you, you sense its effects, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit goes where He wishes, doesn't He? He does what He wills. He gives life as He sees fit. And yet this is all still about as clear as mud to Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus, verse 9, says to Jesus, okay, how can these things be? And notice now that it's Jesus' turn to be incredulous. Jesus is now the one going, really? Jesus answered him and He said, are you the teacher of Israel? Are you the professor of the Old Testament? Are you the guy that's been studying all of these Old Testament scriptures, pretty much all your life. You've written articles and published them. You've got books, you know, you've got a library. I mean, you're the man, really? Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Don't you know the Bible? Truly, truly, I say to you and to us a third time. He says, we speak of what we know. And I love that because Nicodemus came to him and said, Rabbi, we know Oh, well, we know that you're a teacher come from God because, I mean, you know, how else could you do all of these things? Jesus is saying, look, you've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. You still don't know. So let me tell you what we know, meaning primarily him and his disciples who were on the journey. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you're blind yet. Sight is the gift of God's Spirit. But you do not receive our testimony as a result. And if I have told you, he says, earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, Jesus says, except me is what he's saying, except he who has descended from heaven and brought with him from heaven. Heavenly truth. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then it's as though he kind of says, all right, look, let's just cut through the chase. You came to me with a question. The question is, who is Jesus? And now I'm going to give you the answer. But I'm going to give it to you in a way that you as a professor of the Old Testament can work through. And as you work it through, all of these other issues about gaining my heaven and going on my mission... It's going to get clear to you. 
Jesus says, you came to me with a question, who am I? Okay, here we go. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have the eternal life that you, Nicodemus, and maybe some of us today assume that we have because, you know, I mean, generally speaking, we're good people. So what is he saying to Nicodemus? He's saying, look, if you want to know who I am and consequently how to gain my heaven and live for my kingdom, go on my mission, really and truly, well, Nicodemus, then you need to go back and you need to meditate on this image of a serpent on a tree. And as a professor of the Old Testament, that would have given Nicodemus a lot to think about. So, for example, Nicodemus would have immediately gone back into that story in the Old Testament of how Moses brought Israel up out of Egypt and he brought them out into the wilderness, a place of deprivation, no farms, no supermarkets, no Publix, okay? No McDonald's, no Burger King, nothing to eat. And when you bring a few million people out into a place where there's not a lot to eat, it's not long before dinner becomes everyone's topic of conversation. And they're none too happy with you for having brought them there. They're starving physically. And they come to Moses, and Moses comes to God, and what is God's answer? It's heavenly bread. He sends them this bread from heaven. It's called manna. You've heard the story. And so it's kind of a cool deal, at least initially, because they wake up every morning, and like the manna is just there. So they go out, they collect up the manna, they eat it, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They go to bed, they wake up the next day, there it is again. They go out, they collect it up, they eat it, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They go to bed, they get up, they go out the next day, they collect it up, they eat it, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They go to bed, they get up, they go out the next day, bam, there it is, they collect it up, they eat it, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They go to bed, they get up, they collect it all up again, they eat it, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Are you sick of this yet? Because they're sick of it at some point. And they complain about the heavenly bread. That is God's provision. For their starvation, they reject the bread from heaven. And then what happens? Then God sends fiery serpents in judgment amongst the Israelites. I don't know about you, but I don't like serpents. And I am particularly not digging an onslaught of fiery serpents when I'm sleeping in a tent. And I don't think they come breathing fire. I think when they bite you, it burns like you're on fire. And before long, the fire consumes you and you die. And now the people come again to Moses, this time with a different problem. And Moses goes again to God and says, "Um, we've got a fiery serpent issue here. I'm thinking you know about. And what's the answer? Because it's not anything you would expect. It's completely foreign to anything you would have possibly anticipated. Let me read it to you. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 8, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. I want you to find a craftsman, and I want you to get a bunch of bronze, and I want him to craft a serpent, just like these fiery serpents that are wiping you out. And then I want you to put it on a wood pole. A wood pole comes from a tree. I want you to craft a serpent and put it on a tree. And then what will happen? Well, everyone who is bitten by one of these serpents, when he sees it, meaning when he stands before the serpent that you make and put on the tree, believing that that will save him. When he gazes in faith upon the serpent on the tree, what will happen? He will 
live. He will be saved from the poison of the serpent. So what did Moses do? Well, he made a bronze serpent and he set it on a wood pole. He set it on a tree and here's the deal. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And so here's what you need to know. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, look, if you want to know who I am, you need to think about serpent on a tree. Nicodemus, Old Testament professor, is running through that story. That's immediately where his mind goes. But it goes other places too. I'm sure that he sat around and he just thought about the image of the serpent in the Bible. Lots of material on that. Let me just give you a snippet. The image of the serpent in the Bible is the image or the emblem of evil itself. We find that in the first few pages. We see that when Satan comes and he enters into the Garden of Eden to deceive our first parents, Adam and Eve, he doesn't come as a Labrador retriever. He doesn't float in as a butterfly. He doesn't amble in as a cow. He comes as a serpent, and he is a deadly serpent. You see, the serpent is the emblem of evil in the Bible. Nicodemus knew that. He was a studied man. And he knew something also about the image of the tree in the Bible. And so, for example, he knew that the Bible begins with this story of a garden, famous for its trees too in particular, tree of life, tree of death. And where were they found in the garden? Because it matters. They were found in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of death. And again, you know the story. Here comes Satan in the form of a you know, goldfish, and he's going to deceive. No, he's a serpent. And he deceives our first parents into eating from the tree of death. And then what happens? Well, then we read, and Nicodemus knew all this, of this conversation. It's very curious that God has with God. It's like, you know, the veil is torn back, and you get to sort of see what the Lord is doing, and you sense his reasoning, and you recognize, hey, he's talking about these two trees. What do we do now that the man has eaten from the tree of death? Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. But how? In knowing good, now that's not the problematic part, is it? And evil. Well, that's curious. I mean, does one of the Trinity know not just good, but but evil, and then how, and when, and in what sense? Well, nevertheless, he then goes on and says, Now, lest he, this man, who's eaten from the fruit of the tree of death, reach out his hand now and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever in this horrible state of sinfulness. Therefore, the Lord God sent the man out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, and he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, at the gate, if you will, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so there is the tree of life and there is the tree of death. And the way to the tree of life is barred, leaving us to suffer from the poison of the tree of death. That the poisonous, viperous snake deceived us into eating. Nicodemus knows these stories, guys. He understands all this. There's a lot to think about, doesn't he? And he knows also that then as the Bible progresses from that story in the garden where man is banished in the way to the tree of life, you know, having now eaten of the tree of death, has been barred, he understands that what happens with the tree is that the tree then becomes this image of cursing and of death. He knows what Moses says in Deuteronomy 21, verse 22, where he says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and then you do what with him? 
You hang his body on a tree. On a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man, meaning he who is hung on a tree, is what? Cursed by God. Nicodemus knows this, and he knows in the Bible multiple examples of this happening. He knows that when Joshua and the Israelites roll up into the land of Canaan, they defeat the city of Ai, if you will, and he takes the king of Ai and he grabs his dead body and he hangs him on a tree. He hangs him on a tree. The dead king. And the message to the people of Ai, they would have gotten this, is the king represents his people. He's receiving what all of them deserve. He's bearing, in a sense, their curse. But at the end of the day, in accordance with the law of Moses, his body is taken down and buried under a pile of stones. See, Nicodemus is processing this. He knows that when Joshua fights against five of the kings all at one time, this confederation who ganged up against Joshua and the Israelites, and the Israelites overrun them for the Lord is with them, that Joshua then takes all five of those kings, all five of their dead bodies, and he hangs all five of their dead bodies on trees. And there they are. And what's the message? Well, the king represents his people. The king is receiving what all of them deserve. He bears the curse of God. He takes down, at the end of the day, all five bodies, throws them in a cave, covers over the mouth of the cave with stones. Nicodemus knew that when Absalom, the son of David, conspired against his father, who was the king, and stole the kingdom and proclaimed himself to be king, and then had to fight it out with David's armies... As Absalom is fleeing from the armies of David, he's riding a mule because, believe it or not, that was the kingly beast, and his long hair, for which he's famous, just don't get distracted, is flying in the wind, okay? And he's ducking under trees as he goes until his hair gets caught up in the wind, and then the only thing moving is the donkey, which keeps going. And where is he? He's hanging in a tree trying to get himself disconnected. And what happens? Joab comes, the commander of David's armies, and pierces him in the side with spears, kills him. But he doesn't leave him hanging in the tree, takes him down, throws him in a pit, covers it over with stones. So Nicodemus knows all this, and so when he comes to Jesus with this burning question of, okay, who is Jesus? And Jesus says to him, Well, you know, what you need to do is just go think about the Bible a little while. And let me direct your studies. Here's what you need to think about. Serpent on a tree, Nicodemus suddenly has a lot to think about. And I got to believe that he left that late night meeting of Jesus kind of with his head spinning and all of this stuff and all of these scriptures spinning around in his mind. And he's, you know, it's like a jigsaw puzzle spread out on a table and you're trying to figure it all out. And however, I think that as he watched the ministry of Jesus unfold from there, the pieces started coming together in a way that slowly but surely made sense to him. So I think, for example, that when Jesus claimed to be the true bread from heaven. Sound familiar? The real manna of God, not to satisfy physical starvation, but to satisfy spiritual starvation. 
I think a little light bulb went on in his head. See, I think that helped. And then I think that as Nicodemus watched the reaction to this Jesus, the true bread from heaven, which was what? Rejection. I think another light went on. I think that helped. I think that when Jesus then stood up and said this about the Pharisees, listen to the language. The Pharisees of which Nicodemus is a part. So you know he heard this statement. What did Jesus call them? He says, you serpents, this is Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you who live and teach that my heaven is gained and my mission is lived by the works of your own flesh, apart from faith and the work of God's Spirit? You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being sentenced to hell? And I think that helped because when the Israelites of old rejected the heavenly bread meant to cure their physical starvation, what did God send among them? Fiery, poisonous, deadly serpents. Not a real compliment to the Pharisees, by the way. And what was the cure for the Israelites of old? It was to look in faith at the serpent on the tree. So let me read to you again what Jesus says to Nicodemus when he comes to him with this question of who is Jesus? Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must I, the Son of Man, be lifted up. That whoever believes in me, Jesus is saying, whoever looks on me in faith, whoever the Spirit gives eyes to behold me, as that for them, well, they may have the eternal life that cannot be gained any other way. And so then when you come to the end of the life of Jesus, as John records it for us in his gospel, and you look at John's account of the crucifixion, it's interesting because it takes place in the midst of two gardens. And what I mean by that is that just as you read the story through, you start out in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus kneels and Jesus prays and Jesus is arrested and from which Jesus is taken, falsely accused, falsely tried, falsely convicted, unfairly tortured and taken to the cross, taken to the tree where he is lifted up. And over his head in three languages, he is declared to be a king. He bears the curse for his people. He's pierced in the side by a soldier with a spear. He suffers and dies there receiving what all of His people deserve and receiving it in their place. And then, of course, before evening, in accordance with the law of Moses, as with every other story that we've looked at already today, His body is taken down, isn't it? And it's taken to another garden. See the other garden? Where His tomb is located. And what is His tomb? It's just a cave. It's hewn out of stone. And they put His body into His tomb. And what do they cover the mouth of the tomb with? A stone. It's fascinating, isn't it? And so then you have these two gardens, and in the midst of this, well, of these two gardens, you have the tree of Christ. And if you're following along, you're going, yeah, but, you know, in the midst of the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, the tree of life, the tree of death. Shouldn't there, Tom, be two trees to complete the analogy? No, actually, there shouldn't, because in the cross of Jesus Christ, the tree of life and tree of death converge. It's the tree of death for Him. It's where He hangs as our curse. 
Paul says he became sin, but it's the tree of life for every single one of us who behold him there and are healed. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. By the way, do you know who claimed the body of Jesus from the tree of the cross? Joseph of Arimathea, he gets, I think, the most kind of brownie points for that. And Nicodemus. He's not sneaking around in the dark at this point, apparently. And I have to believe that as Nicodemus stood at the foot of this cross and beheld the Son of Man lifted up, sort of the last few pieces of that puzzle that were disconnected came together for him. And what do you think went running through his mind? Because I think it went something like this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever abandons all of their futile efforts to please God, to gain His heaven, to earn His favor, to live in their own strength His mission, and who instead believes in Him, who looks on Him in faith, may what? Have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I think Nicodemus did that. And then beyond that, John, who has carefully constructed this gospel, took this story with this question and this answer, and he placed it into his gospel so that you and I might behold the Son of Man lifted up, believe on Him, and be healed as well. So who is Jesus? He's the one who alone can heal us from our sin.